This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. It's been a week of cancelled via rail train trips through the key Montreal-Toronto-Ottawa corridor because of an ongoing protest and rail blockade near Belleville, where members of the Tyantanega Mohawk Territory have parked a large dump truck with a plow along the tracks. Demonstrators are protesting in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en First Nations and their supporters in northern British Columbia, some of whom are opposed to the coastal GasLink pipeline. In addition, freight train traffic has been negatively affected across the country, but specifically in southern Ontario and British Columbia. It's said to be costing the economy tens of millions of dollars. And in addition to passenger trips, it's affecting shipments of food, construction materials, lumber, aluminum, coal and propane. A court injunction has declared the protest near Belleville to be illegal and forbids any continued interference with the rail line under the threat of arrest. On Tuesday, Federal Transport Minister Mark Garneau called on the provinces to enforce the injunction, saying it's their jurisdiction. And then on Thursday, Via Rail cancelled all passenger train trips across the country. To discuss the situation up until Wednesday, Libby Snymer spoke with Krista Big Canoe, Legal Director, Aboriginal Legal Services, and Toronto Sun columnist Anthony Fury. There are people who are on the Mohawk Territory, the elected representatives, the chief, who are saying, this ain't us, this ain't our scene. They don't support it. It's kind of, you know, you're left scratching your head going, okay, there's a project in BC that that entire community, the Wet'suwet'en and First Nation, their band council supports it. They did an opinion poll of their members and something like 75% of them supported them. But then you've got four or five hereditary chiefs. They're just the only ones who are against it. And I see these videos online of people blockading the BC legislature. And and I'm looking, and Libby, I'm trying really hard to be generous here. We're told these are First Nations elders or something. All I see are are young blonde women around, I don't know, the age of 20 or something. I guess there's one or two First Nations people in the mix. And for some reason, that scenario means that via rail, uh, passenger rail and freight cannot go from Toronto to Ottawa and that police will not enforce the law. What a tangled web. It boggles the mind. Just let's be pro-First Nations because they're pro-development, you know, Canadian Aboriginal business. Council sends out their reports, and every year I go, "Wow, this is this is a community with a growing birth rate. It's a young population, and I think we got to get behind all the great First Nations people in this country." Right now, I'd like to bring in Krista Big Canoe, and she is the legal director of Aboriginal Legal Services. There's this tension and this dichotomy between the elected band officials and their decisions and the hereditary chiefs. Can you just clarify what those? two groups, uh, what kind of authority they have? Certainly. Um, and I think a lot of the discourse is an understanding the di- difference or distinguishment between the two. An elected band chief is elected pursuant to the Indian Act. So in 2020, this country still has a race-based act called the Indian Act that only uh, I- impacts First Nation 
people. And then there's hereditary chiefs. And even that word's a little misleading because it's not like a hierarchy. Hereditary chiefs have a lot of community accountability. And so a good way uh, to kind of think of it is the elected band chiefs and councils are responsible for their communities, so reserves in Canada. And the hereditary chiefs, at least in relation to the territories we're talking about in BC, um, have to have a larger responsibility to larger parcels of land, not that that's the reserve, but all of the traditional territories. And so I think for people to understand, if someone goes into an agreement, so for example, if you want to have an agreement in Toronto, you don't go and talk to London right? Unless there's something that might impact uh, the people of London's rights as well, you'd actually make the agreement with the City Council of Toronto, not London. So that's one example I like to use. Do you agree with Anthony Fury? We just had him on before with his take on it, that, that this was a matter of hereditary chiefs and that in his view, most of the protesters out there are, are not even First Nations people. Yeah, and I, I can't actually, I did uh, hear um, Mr. Fugre say that. I, I can't necessarily agree with that. And where you see sort of an uptake, there's, I, I think it's hard to know. So, for example, if you looked at me, I look very Caucasian. I may well be one of the Caucasian women he's seeing when he characterizes who he's seeing. So I don't think that's a fair assessment. I don't think he has statistics or numbers that back it. There are two groups, obviously, or more that take different positions on this. And so one of the points, though, is respecting uh, the First Nation rights of individuals will vary for people and on issues. So once you impact economy, people get quite upset, they're put off. Um, But one of the things that we do know, like more broadly and generally, is sort of the interactions that are happening now. And I, I like to specify it to the reason people are rising up is what what you saw happening um, at the actual camps, so like at the youth stolen camp, where there was just, there was elders and women, and we put in, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars of police resources to remove them when they're standing at a healing lodge. So what's happening is people are reacting to symbols, um, things that they recognize, sort of this colonial legacy. So I don't agree with Mr. Fury. I don't think we can determine who's on which side. I don't think there's been any good work done on it, quite frankly. How do you think this impasse will end? A lot of what we're seeing, so the rail, the railroad example is an extreme example, but if you look at all of the movement and action that's happening across the country, it's by and large peaceful. Uh, they're having sit-ins, they're doing round dances, and I think, though, the Indigenous people in this country are feeling a lot like the Canadian law that's being imposed on them isn't fair and that they have rights that they need to stand up for. So I think you're going to see continued um, protests, speak out, and it, but it's done mostly in a peaceful way. Krista Big Canoe, Legal Director, Aboriginal Legal Services, and Toronto Sun columnist Anthony Fury in conversation with Libby Snymer on Wednesday. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spent much of this past week in Africa with Raptors President Masai Ujiri and his delegation, among others. During his trip, Trudeau attended the African Union Summit with a primary mission to garner support for a bid by Canada to gain a seat on the United Nations Security Council. Two cabinet ministers and a parliamentary secretary have also been involved in this lobbying effort, as well 13 government employees who are working on it full time. Why does Prime Minister Justin Trudeau want this so badly? 
Libby asked this question of Dr. Thomas Kwasi Tieku, professor of political science at King's University College in London, Ontario, and Diane Francis, Canadian journalist, author, and editor at large for the National Post newspaper since 1998. Well, I think it's a waste of time, and I think it's another indication of how this is a prime minister who's really not a good leader for Canada. I don't think he's done much of, of anything for the country. Uh, he's alienated a lot of Canadians. He, he lost his majority as a result. And this is another indication of a guy who's really not engaged in the issues that mean a lot to Canadians. And he's, he's you know, flitting around, doing a, doing a thing in Africa that is not going to confer one iota of benefit to Canadians. He's spending millions of dollars doing it. He's sort of fiddling while Rome burns. You know, we've got this uh, indigenous crisis going on right now, which in part was his his doing. The United Security Council has 15 members. This is one seat. And, you know, the the Security Council is run by the big five, and they, they veto everything. And I I don't even understand why this would be sought after. Why does he want this? Uh, It doesn't move the dial on any of the things that mean anything to most Canadians, like the cost of rent, the cost of housing, the cost of food. And, you know, when am I going to get my oil job back and they stop barring pipelines for no reason that have been legally approved? I mean, these are the things that people are concerned about. And... uh, you know, it's not because people are shallow, but this is what he's been hired, so to speak, or elected to do, is to look after uh, Canadians' interests, not his own interests in, in get, gaining some kind of small prestige from being on the Security Council. I, I don't understand it. I think it's just ego, and I think it's an attempt to, to distract. And now I would like to also bring in Dr. Thomas Kwasi-Tieku. He is a professor of political science at King's University College in London, and he has a very different view. What do you say? A country such as Canada, with a small population and a huge land size, we need multilateral institutions such as the UN more than any other country. And sitting at the UN Security Council is a very, very important place for us to be because the UN Security Council, as some people often don't know, is the only institution that can make a rule that is binding on everyone, including Canada, whether you are at the table or not. And as we often say, if you are not at the table, you are probably on the menu, right? So if you are big land, our military, it would not be enough to defend our land. It is the rules, international rules, that would help us defend our land. And if anything has taught us any lesson at all, the annexation of Crimea by Russia tells us that we need these international rules and norms to protect and guide all of us. Dr. Tieku, I mean, the, the big five have a veto anyway. What, what do you say to that? Well, nothing comes to the UN Security Council without a back, a back room negotiation. And when you are in the council, you get to take part in that, in terms of negotiating the resolution that comes to the table. There are a number of problems that we have in Canada here that if we were at the UN Security Council, we might be able to resolve it effectively. Take our, you know, our relationship with our biggest trading partner. The ambassador to the UN is actually a cabinet minister, and therefore a number of issues the Canadian ambassador will be able to sit at the table and negotiate with. And anyway, once you go on the Security Council, 
your the attitude towards you globally changes. Let me give you a small a small statistic just to back this one up. If you look at the even developing countries, as soon as they go into the UN Security Council, aid to them quadruples. And that's the statistics that we have, and that's the study that has been done, and that's a consensus about academics. So it's a very important thing. Let me come down to this bread and butter issue that Diana is raising, right? The Prime Minister trip, it's one aspect is the UN Security Council, but the bigger issue is the Prime Minister trying to use the African continent to reset our relationship in such a way that we would be able to engage on the African continent. For example, a continent where we depend on only on the extractive sector, for example, we have an asset of around 26 billion. So if Diana is talking about, you know, the cost of our housing, the cost of our, the hospital that, you know, if he's going to my sign or going to any, those things are very important, particularly given that he's in Toronto, which is a mining, which I said most of our mining is already in African continent. Dr. Thomas Kwasi Tieku, Professor of Political Science at King's University College in London, Ontario, and Diane Francis, Canadian journalist, author, and editor-at-large at The National Post. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. It's a problem successive Ontario governments have promised to fix, but instead auto insurance rates keep going higher. Report after report has concluded that drivers in this province are overpaying. Back a few years ago, the New Democrats supported a liberal minority government on condition it would reduce premiums by 15% by summer of 2015. When that did not happen, then-Premier Kathleen Wynne called it a stretch goal. The governing Ford PCs campaigned on lowering rates, but the regulator just this week approved another increase, the ninth consecutive hike, which means rates are now 20% higher than they were in 2017. A new report for the Ontario Trial Lawyers Association has put a figure on it. Ontario drivers have been overpaying by billions, between $7.6 and $12.7 billion over 17 years. The reason for that, the report says, is lax oversight of the insurance industry. Joining Libby Snymer on Thursday to discuss, Tom Rakasevic, Ontario NDP auto insurance critic, Pete Karagiorgios at the Insurance Bureau of of Canada and Alan Weinpearl, president of the Ontario Trial Lawyers Association. Premiums have gone up, uh, being approved 20% over the last three years, and uh, it, it really defies explanation as to why this has happened. That's why we retain Dr. Lazar, and, and he finds that insurance companies' are, profits are, are as good as they've ever been, if not better. The top 10 insurers in Ontario, just so everybody understands, uh, take in 80% of the premium dollars. and. And, and the, Dr. Lazar has found that the rates of return that uh, auto insurers in the province of Ontario are getting are greater than the rest of their businesses throughout the country. It's, it's an amazing finding. It really means that uh, uh, all of us are propping up the insurance industry around the country, not just in, in our home province of Ontario. I'd like to bring in Pete Karagiorgis. He's uh, the Director of Consumer and Industry Relations at the Insurance Bureau of Canada. So you represent the insurers. Do you agree that uh, drivers are overpaying? Well, you have to look at it this way. Uh, Like any business, your costs are going to drive your price. And so the 
Prices that we're paying in Ontario, are they high? Yes. Um, they're not the highest in the country. I think the focus needs to be on consumers, people like you and I who are injured. And so let's also be honest and straightforward with people. And, and that's the problem that the, when you look at the report, there's, there's big, big question marks that remain. One is that why are you looking at a report that mentions the fact that they only consider companies that made money? There are companies out there that lose money. You know, this is the same thing as saying the Toronto Maple Leafs are, you know, leading their division and are going to be in the playoffs because we're not ignoring, we're going to ignore their losses. You can't ignore the losses. You got to look at the whole picture if you want to be transparent and honest with people. So we can't cherry pick. We have to look at all the insurance companies. We have to look at the entire situation. And when you do that and create an honest picture, the facts that speak for themselves are, Insurance companies are making money. They're a business. They're not making anywhere near what this is being reported. I'm going to let MPP Tom Rakasevic. Now, you're recommending that the profits of insurance companies be limited. So I was really proud to work with Professor Lazar earlier last year uh, in putting forth one of two NDP opposition bills about auto insurance. The first one um, which I supported had to do with what we call postal code prejudice, whereby certain communities within Ontario, Brampton, Humber River, Black Creek, where I live, Scarborough, and a number of others are way overpaying. And the second, the one that I authored with Professor Lazar, did three things. It talked about modernizing operating costs. It talked about limiting the return on equity that these companies have, which are set at 11%. We wanted it dropped to a more reasonable 7%. And of course, more transparency, opening the books and letting the public know. I hear almost every day from people disappointed in the auto insurance industry and their rates. And the fact is, this government and the Liberal government prior have allowed these insurers to charge whatever they want. Nine consecutive increases. We're paying 20% higher than even in 2017. Um, the Liberals promised to reduce rates by 15%. They called it a stretch goal. This premier campaigned on lowering rates. We just see them go up and up. It's an issue. Ask anybody and they'll tell you they're being gouged, not auto insurance. Alan Weinperl, what would you like to leave us with? You know, Pete, the, the difference is, though, when you got hurt, there was a much better benefit system available for, for injured people. Now people get less. How is it that we are, are getting less and paying more a decade later? It, it, it just defies common sense. Tom Rakusevic? Conservative government taking where the Liberals left off. They're putting insurers in the driver's seat, not Ontario drivers. We deserve respect. We're getting less benefits, having to fight auto insurance companies when we're injured, and yet rates keep going up. Drivers deserve respect. It's got to stop. Again, you know, those are tired expressions and, and phrases, and, and each political party has had their opportunity to fix the system. I think we all need to be committed together to improve the system for uh, Ontario's motorists and, and focusing on something, as I say it again, the care not cash approach, the mentality that we need to help people recover from their injuries from a collision as quickly as possible. That's where injured people want to be. They want to be back on their feet. Pete Karagiorgios at the Insurance Bureau of Canada, Tom Rakasevic, Ontario NDP auto insurance critic, and Alan Weinperl, president of the Ontario Trial Lawyers Association. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Earl in Oakville phoned with his take on the pipeline protests. 
I think the pipeline is going to benefit everybody, the government, the indigenous people. And what they're doing is illegal, and I think the police should go in there and remove them. Brian in Mimico is cynical about Prime Minister Trudeau's intentions in Africa. You know, I think our esteemed actor playing the role of Prime Minister wants to set himself up for a high uh, UN job, perhaps with his ego, Secretary General. I think that's where a lot of this is going. Warren in Oshawa does not agree with the Prime Minister's attempts to try and get Canada a seat on the UN Security Council. All Trudeau is doing is just bribing his way into a position that's just going to give us give away more of our taxpayers' money if we get on the Security Council. There's enough problems in Canada alone that he's just throwing off to the provinces with this blockade and everything and gun control. He wants the cities to look after the gun control instead of the federal government making the decision on that. Like, like I said, just a waste of money. He should get back to Canada and look after his own country first. Pat in Toronto phoned to talk about the need to be overly cautious when it comes to the possibility of being a victim of scams. The public just has to be very, very, very careful because there are so many scams out there, so many bad emails coming to us every day. You know, you're almost forced to go back to <laughs> working in cash or working in checks. I or mean, going to the teller. The ability to lose money is just incredible. Ron in Guelph called to give his take on the labor unrest with Ontario's teachers. It looks like the tide is starting to turn where at one time, the uh, I guess the teachers and the unions thought that the public was always on their side. Well, eh, I guess that's not the, the way it's turning out now, where the, um, the public is concerned about bigger uh, class sizes, but they're certainly not believing that the teachers deserve the raise that they're asking mm-hmm. for. Susan in Tottenham called about a devastating personal situation involving car insurance. My daughter, um, she was involved in a car accident. She was hit by a drunk driver. So now we're going through lawyers, and it's just really the first year we're dealing with them. We were collecting because we had to um, drain our own private insurance, then go into auto insurance. We're, we were trying to recoup. Now she's like, we, she won't have a future. Her future, what she was going to do, is going to be lost. We don't know the outcome. So now I'm looking for future costs. Because what is she going to do? She had a plan for her future. Well, the drunk driver took her plan. So now I can't go after them until we go after the insurance company. And this is what they've told me. I would have went directly after him, but we can't. So the whole process of auto insurance in Ontario sucks. Does not protect, doesn't protect the victims. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Helen in Toronto, who called about the ongoing challenge of buying reasonably priced auto insurance in Ontario. My insurance goes up every year, even though I haven't had an accident in 20 years. Now, I try to do what everybody recommends, go look at other insurers. When I did, they told me, you're going to start at zero, and you're going to have to work your way up. To. I don't know if it's six points or ten points. Um, and then when you go back to the insurance company and say, hey, this is too high considering, uh, they'll say, well, how about reducing this? How about reducing that? You can't reduce those things. I mean, you've got to have the liability to cover just in case catastrophic injuries. 
Sure. If the car was uh, an old clunker, yeah, you don't want to pay a fortune to have it repaired. Um, but when the car, <laughs> my last car, I kept for 15 years and it was still running. So uh, I can't understand uh, why I have to start at point zero. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Be sure to tune in and join me for a live Family Day Fight Back tomorrow at noon. I want your input on family life in 2020. And join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.